0: Hi friends, welcome to the Friends of France Podcast. In this safe space, we are favored in each episode with the presence of an expert guest from different fields and specialties as we learn about their life journeys, their successes, possible regrets, and realizations, their work, why they do what they do, and even their life outside of work. In here, we tear down common myths and misinformation with up-to-date, evidence-based science and data simplified for anyone to digest. We don't shy away from topics that can sometimes be polarizing or taboo. We normalize the humanization of healthcare and its workers and re-promote the importance of self-care and safeguarding your mental health. Please keep in mind that the conversations in this podcast are for educational and informational purposes only. They are not implied or intended to be a substitute for professional medical diagnosis, advice or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers regarding a medical condition. Are you ready? Let's go! Hi friends, happy Friday! It's kind of a little hard to talk today because I have a little bit of a sore throat and running down cold. I'm guessing it's because of the drastic weather changes here in New York City the past two weeks. a few days ago. It was just like spring in the 60s and I had to take off my sweater while I was walking after work. And then yesterday it was colder than before. two Saturdays before that, I was like in the negatives here in New York City and I went to work. So I feel like my body's taking a toll on me now that I've been out and about in the severe weather changes. So my voice today, this intro, may not be as loud as the previous weeks. But anyways, we still have a new episode today of the Friends of France podcast. And I am so excited to share with you our guest for today. This episode was recorded back in April of 2022, and April is considered to be a month with so many awareness months. It's STI Awareness Month, World Health Day, National Public Health Week, National Youth HIV AIDS Awareness Day, National Infant Immunization Week, World Immunization Week, just to name a few. Yes, there are more. And so I wanted to tie all of this together. And at that time, I was finding a guest of who can speak to us about these several things of, you know, health day and immunization and public health and HIV and AIDS. And, you know, I had the one person in mind, a good friend of mine. You may know her as Keturin Clinic Online, her blog and Instagram, Asia Sullivan, who's a physician assistant or physician associate, whichever you prefer. Actually, I think around this time of recording, it was also the time when the news came out that the PA profession, the title, would be impending change to physician associate. So it was such a special time. And Asia is a physician assistant who works in primary care, specifically in LGBTQ plus primary care, working within the queer community. So it was very interesting and exciting for me to bring her on because I know that we can tackle all of the awareness months that I previously mentioned. We can talk about immunization, which is very close and within the fields of primary care and public health. We can talk about prevalence and persistent myths and misinformation regarding the queer community, specifically about HIV, AIDS and other sexually transmitted illnesses, which also still falls within both of Asia's expertise in primary care within the LGBTQ plus community, but also in public health, given that she actually studied public health both in undergrad and her graduate studies, having an MPH of masters in public health. If you've been recognizing from our past few episodes, we're really hitting a lot of taboo topics. I mean, even from the first episode, from the get-go of the season. We talked about STIs and sexism in medicine with Dr. Shiva Gofrani in the first episode. We talk about sexual health and reconstructive surgery and also STIs with urologist Dr. Fenway Milhouse in the seventh episode. And I just want to continue this theme of just transparency and vulnerability in this season and the seasons to come. And I'm so glad that I can bring Asia on to really tackle uh, these myths and uh, these very dangerous sources of misinformation and I love all of the answers that she has given to us in this episode, so I'm so excited to talk about it. And I found this topic to be very, very important. And, you know, from the teaser that I will post online and in a section here in today's episode, one of the statements that just said that really shocked to me was when she said, you know, for a fact, that demographic of people do not seek Care, specifically health care, that they need because of all of the stigma, because of, all of the fear of ridicule and of shame and discrimination. So I found it very important we tackle these topics. You know, a huge part of public health is statistics, by statistics, and epidemiology and the social determinants of health and finding out the root cause of why and how and all of the topics and the nuances surrounding a specific topic. And again, specifically about the LGBTQ plus community. And now according to Cigna, health disparities within the LGBTQ plus community is just there in comparison relative to the general population, right? It was said that they are at higher risk for certain conditions, have less access to healthcare, and again, tying this back to not just having access or less access, but the fear to take advantage of the access that they may have because, again, of the fear of discrimination, and have worse health outcomes. And just a statistic that I want to share out is this. Older LGBTQ plus adults are more likely to rate their health as poor and report more chronic conditions while having less support. LGBTQ plus people are less likely to have a regular healthcare provider. They are less likely to have health insurance, more likely to delay getting care, especially in older LGBTQ plus adults, and more likely to report lack of cultural competency and report poor quality of care and unfair treatment by healthcare providers. This is very important because all of these statistics and rates just mean one thing. Members of the LGBTQ plus community. Are the poorer and the stick when it comes to receiving healthcare. And not just healthcare, quality healthcare. And now I want to extrapolate this data and even think and imagine members of the LGBTQ community who are also considered racial and ethnic minorities. I mean, there is data from the National LGBTQ Task Force it says that says Black, transgender, and gender nonconforming people face some of the highest levels of discrimination of all transgender people. You know, when I talk to a lot of friends uh, who are also healthcare workers, we always agree that we always talk about getting care, getting healthcare, using the insurance, if you do have insurance. But what's not really talked about is the more important aspect. It's not just getting the lab tests you need, getting the imaging that you need, but getting the quality of care. And that quality of care is determined by so many factors. But one of those factors is the person in front of you, the one who's seeing you, the healthcare provider, whether it's a physician or an advanced provider like an NP or a PA or a CRNA or anyone of the like or any clinician, even an RN, who's giving your vaccination. The quality of care also roots from that person itself who is giving the care. Any biases, any stereotypes, any discrimination. And we see that The stigma and discrimination and institutional bias in the healthcare system, which again is very nuanced and multifactorial, is a very sad story for many LGBTQ community members. And so, so important that in this episode, we talked about the ways one, that recognizing if we are getting subpar quality of treatment and care, but also what we can do better to cater to many people to all people, despite of sex, or gender, or preferences, or creed, or race, or ethnicity. And this is where we talk a lot about pronouns, and legal names, versus preferred names, and gender, and sexual preferences. And we go into a sort of a tour, a virtual tour, of what happens in Asia's clinic, which again is very specific to the LGBTQ community when it comes to primary care, how they cater and how they show their quality of service and their genuine care for the community. So I hope everyone
1: can get to learn
0: and pick up something from today's episode. And uh, you know, at the end of the episode, this probably is an auto-spoiler, but we did say that we know we have reached the point of what we want in LGBTQ plus or queer community care, when it is no longer a specialized area in medicine, where it's just care, it's just health care. So yeah, you are in for a treat today. And I'm so excited for you to meet Asia, if you don't know her yet. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's go. Hello. Hello. Asia, how are you doing?
2: um well
0: thanks for asking what about you i'm good thank you thank you for joining me tonight you know so i was just on facebook like scrolling through my newsfeed, and i think it knows because i saw your ad for echo health the you stethoscope
1: <laughs> so nice. i was like
0: they know They know. Well, thank you so much, and congratulations on the recent big event. How does it feel?
2: It feels great. Today is my one-week anniversary, so we got married last Saturday, and it feels really good. We're still, you know, super excited on Cloud9, and I'm excited to share more of our wedding stuff. I haven't shared a lot yet.
0: I know. I've been looking forward to it. Congratulations, (laughs) and thank you for Spending your one-week anniversary <laughs> of celebration with me here. If you could just first please introduce yourself to everybody. It's such an honor.
2: You're so super sweet. Well, my <laughs> name is Asia Sullivan, and I am a physician assistant or associate, whichever term you're using nowadays. I work in primary care in Los Angeles, and our practice has a focus on the LGBTQ plus community. So we see everyone, but most of our patients are in the queer or trans community, and that's what makes us a little bit special. I went to PA school and undergrad in Alabama, where I'm from, at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, or UAB. I'm always repping. (laughs) If you have any questions, (laughs) let me know. And yeah, I got my bachelor's of public health there. I also did a dual program for public health and PA studies there. And when I graduated, I moved straight to LA.
0: There we go. And you know, I've been so excited for this because April is a month full of... You know, we have those National Ice Cream Day, National Sushi Day. And April is a month of so many things within the public health realm. April 1 to 7 is National Public Health Week. April seventh is like World Health Day. April tenth is National Youth HIV and AIDS Prevention Day. And then I think sometime within this week, it was like World Immunization Week. So when I was looking at the calendar, I was like, there is no better person for me to talk to and have the honor of speaking to with all of that combined, then you I mean, we know how the internet is with all of this misinformation about different fields and the different specialties, right? So I thought, instead of letting the people who are nameless and faceless and have no idea what's going on about these topics, why don't we get the actual educated and trained experts of the field to talk about these things and dispel a lot of the misinformation and disinformation that we're seeing? And we have viewed this now. Yeah, it is a big problem. You're a PA, so I know it's position assistant, but the APA changed it. I think to position associate, right?
2: Yeah, that's correct. So, um, it, I, it kind of there's a little bit of a debate right now about uh-huh. people referring to uh-huh. the profession as. Um, people have kind of just started to learn what a PA is and what they do, but the term associate really does kind of reflect it a little bit better than assistant. So the name was officially changed, but I think it's going to take some time before we really start seeing the utilization of. Position associate, but yeah, officially we are position associates now. Which is there
0: exciting. we go. I wanted to ask, where did this inspiration for the healthcare realm come from? Was there like a family member, or friends, or personal experience? Why you're like, oh, I want to go into this field of healthcare?
2: Yeah, lots of of experiences. And I think every healthcare worker kind of has those moments that led them here. For me, really, I never imagined myself doing anything else. Even when I was a little kid, you know, people would say, What do you want to do? And I'd say, Oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a nurse. I always wanted to be in healthcare. And then so I'm actually from Alabama, really Mm -hmm. rural, like tiny town, Uh, there were really no clinics or hospitals nearby. And I really saw some of my family's health Mm -hmm. suffer because of that just because of lack of access to care mm-hmm. or quality mm-hmm. care, which is something that pushed me even further towards the healthcare field, underserved communities, that sort of thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah, it's a, a combination of a lot of things. I've always wanted to. I've always been a science geek. I love anatomy. Yeah. I love biology. I love like the opportunity to continually learn. You know, you know mm-hmm. everyone in medicine knows things are changing all the time. Yes it's one of the only fields I think where you just things continually change year after year and that's something I love about it as well.
0: Yeah and there's like something new to learn each time right and we'll tackle more about that. Yeah Yeah, I know I mean who expected this to happen right? I mean we'll get more into that when we talk about a little bit more about public health but you're right this field is just it's just ever-changing and there's something new like almost every day but the road to becoming a pa is not easy and i know this because i have a lot of friends who are in pa school and the amount of you know Turmoil and labor it took to first of all get into the program, and then once you get into the program, it's like accelerated speed of everything you're learning. And before you go into your clinical rotations, given through all of that, obviously academic stresses and then stresses in training. Again, learning something new every day. Do you have any regrets going into this field, both like as a PA and also healthcare in general? Ooh, that's
2: a big question. In terms of regrets, no, I don't, I don't think I have any regrets about the decision that I made Mm. and where I am in my career. I think there's a lot of things that I didn't know about healthcare Mm. when I was a student, when I was a pre-PA student. You know, things like how much insurance deters patients or determines what Mm. kind of treatment plans patients can get how much more there is to health care and especially to primary care outside of just, you know, making a diagnosis or, yeah. you know, prescribing whatever. Yeah. There's a lot of nuances and intricacies that go into it mm-hmm. from a like a business and a financial Mm -hmm. perspective. And that's something that's unique to us on our healthcare here in the US. But I wouldn't say I have regrets, but I definitely went into it not knowing a lot of things.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think people outside of the healthcare field or not pursuing the field, I think they're not aware of the amount of work that actually goes into it, right? There's a lot of missed party times because you have to study. There's certain events that you can't go to because yeah. you have to study or you have an exam or you have to go to
2: yep. clinical rotations. And all of the things leading up to school, mm-hmm. you know, all the extracurriculars you're expected yeah. to do, the volunteer hours, the shadowing, mm-hmm. clinical experience. It's. All I of- felt a little bit weird after graduating. It was like the first time <laughs> I've, in so many years that yeah. I haven't just been like, you know, hustling for the resume and trying um, to get the A's and yeah. this weird feeling to finally be finished
0: with that. Yeah, because the route is like a lot of check boxes that needs to be checked, right? It's like, you got to do this, you got to do this. And then when you're finally done, I mean, you've been practicing for a while now too. And I think that's another question I wanted to ask is, if there's a pre-PA student watching or someone who's always wanted to go into this field of PAs, what would be your biggest advice for them given the amount of time and stress and emotions and money involved in the process too?
2: Yeah, my advice is to get as much shadowing experience Mm -hmm. and as much actual patient care experience as you can before Mm -hmm. you you know, jump right in and start applying. And like you said, you know, it's expensive. There's a lot that goes into even the application process. Oh, yeah. so just like I was saying, you know, I wasn't really aware of all yeah. the things that go into yes. Being in healthcare. So, if you are able to shadow people who do what you think mm-hmm. you want to do, whether that's surgery or primary care, that's the best advice I can give you. Mm-hmm. If you've done that and you're like, oh my gosh, yes, this is what I want to do, I love it, then my advice is to go ahead and start researching schools and making sure that your undergrad experience is checking those boxes, mm-hmm. the right classes, you know, any volunteer work you can do. Mm-hmm. So, getting that real world experience is. Mm-hmm first i think and then taking the actual tangible steps to get ready to apply
0: yeah i used to work in the hospital and it's always like an amazing collaboration you know the pas and the nps and the physicians who are there the other nurses as well but i feel like outside of the, the united states especially In Asia, where I'm from, there's a lot of countries where NPs or PAs, their roles are not established in those countries, right? (laughs) Given that, how would you explain your role and profession as a PA? And I guess, what do you cherish and love most about being a PA?
2: These are good questions. (laughs) Um, Well, what I love most about being a PA is probably the easier one to answer. Um, I love the relationship that I'm able to build with patients, especially in a primary care role. You know, I really patients through their lifespan and in a Mm -hmm. long-term way. I love the flexibility that my job offers me. Mm -hmm. I love, like I used to work in an urgent care Mm -hmm. part-time. I also do aesthetics Mm part-time. And so being a PA gives you a lot of flexibility outside of whatever your main specialty may be. People will always say that about the PA profession. It's Mm -hmm. that lateral mobility. But it really is. You know, if I up and decided I wanted to go work in the ER one day or, you know, switch specials. Specialties, it's mm-hmm. an option. PAs get a little bit more time, it seems, to spend mm-hmm. with the patients. Mm-hmm. I feel that, you know, I do have less on my plate in terms of like running a business or being mm-hmm. a business owner yeah. as a PA to actually focus on the patient themselves. Mm-hmm. It takes a little bit of other considerations that you may have as a physician, for example, away. So that's what I love about being a PA.
0: For someone who may not know what the role of a PA is, like, given, like, outside of the United States or, yeah.
2: Or even in the United States. Or in the United States. States. it's It's true, I agree. You're right. For years, they still don't know what a PA is. And that's okay but basically a PA is part of the overall healthcare care team this term is kind of falling out of favor but you can kind of think of us as a mid-level provider so similarly to nurse practitioners who people tend to be a little bit more familiar with PAs can diagnose prescribe treat you know order labs order imaging interpret them PAs actually work in every single specialty from ophthalmology to primary care to GYN to you name it PAs are everywhere. One of the nice things about the profession is that we kind of just fill in the gaps and do whatever's needed to make sure that the patient ultimately has the best outcome. You know we always talk about the healthcare team Mm -hmm. and PAs I think are kind of like the ultimate team player.
0: As someone with acne and blemish prone skin, facial scarring and hyperpigmentation have always been my issues since high school. Acne has robbed me of my self-confidence throughout my schooling years, and having its visible reminders in my face to this day continues to do so. But I have found silver linings of hope having used RescueMD's DNA Repair Complex Serum. Plastic Surgeon Developed, RescueMD seeks to harness the powers of science and two decades of patient experience in providing a multi-benefit skin renewal serum that provides real results and improves the appearance of visible skin damage. Beyond my personal skin concerns, the serum also seeks to adjust a breadth of damage from varying external stressors, including hypertrophic and surgery scars, burns and chemical burns, cuts, scrapes, and bug bites. All of these are targeted by supporting the skin's natural healing process through its infusion with Rust-KMD's patented LabCall, a proprietary anti-inflammatory skincare technology that targets skin damage at the DNA level. The serum also contains a hand-selected blend of other ingredients such as peptides to help strengthen the skin, botanicals like rosehip to soothe, and moisturizing agents such as dimethicone and allantoin that helps to speed up skin recovery. The DNA Repair Complex Serum has been my daily friend, and every day, I feel like I can take back what my scars have stolen from me. Definitely, each skin is different and results are not guaranteed, but I hope that you can find your silver lining too. In partnership with RescueMD, you can get 15% off your order on rescuemd.com with the code FOF15. The serum is also now available on Bloomingdale's.com. Discover what healthy skin healing means with RescueMD. Growing up with my mom, who has been a nurse for the past 30 years, I would always take an adventure in her bookshelf filled with nursing and medical textbooks, encyclopedias, and various human anatomy posters. I still remember perusing through an encyclopedia as a six-year-old trying to look for pictures of eyes and muscles, attempting to pronounce their lengthy names since I could not really understand explanations about the different body parts. Despite the myriad of children's books with topics ranging from magical universities to talking animals and the different types of rocks, there weren't really any books in the workings of the human body when I was a child, for children. Written by physicians Dr. Betty and Dr. Brandon, the Medical School for Kids book series now provides a charming, easy-to-understand introduction to the wonders of the medical field. These books feature beautiful illustrations and simple explanations, teaching children and adults alike about the anatomy, physiology, and diseases of the body. From distinguishing a normal mole from melanoma to discovering the importance of eating healthy food for heart health, To knowing the vital signs that are monitored in the operating room, people of all ages can truly learn something new through these books as they are designed to teach real medical concepts to readers of all ages in ways that anyone can understand. Take an educational adventure into the intricacies of every organ system of the human body. Paperback copies of the books are available for purchase on Amazon.com and eligible for two-day Prime delivery. Kindle versions of the books are also available on Amazon and free with Kindle Unlimited. You can also visit the website md4kids.org for more information. Get ready for an adventure on the medical school bus. A very big and flagrant issue, I guess worldwide, but specifically in the United States too, is the amount of healthcare access inequity that we have in every single state. And sometimes it's independent of demographics, right? I know a recent study came out where it says one in four Americans cannot afford the next medications that they need, whether it's because there's no urgent care nearby, there's no primary care nearby. And in many places in the United States, it will take almost half a year to see a physician, right? And there's people who have these complex and chronic and even acute conditions, and they can't see somebody and their whole health just deteriorates. And that's why it's so amazing that we have a care team model, at least for the major part of the United States, right, where physicians can work together with PAs and NPs to hopefully give access to as many people as possible. And I think that leads us on to our topic of Public health, because I think public health recently has been on the hot news because of the pandemic. But even prior to the pandemic, the world of public health already had its own problems and had its own expertise as well. Well, you have your master's in public health, right? You have your MPH degree. What led you to that decision to pursue that route alongside obviously with your PA degree?
2: Yeah. So I got introduced to the world of public health in undergrad. I did my bachelor's in public health as well, Mm. with a focus in epidemiology. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of all... Connected because while in undergrad, I also got introduced to HIV work and Mm -hmm. HIV research. So I was coming up on to, you know, graduating from undergrad, I really wanted to be a clinician, I wanted to go into clinical practice. But I don't know, public health, I just felt like the work wasn't really done. It's just a field that I loved so much. And that I felt touched every aspect. Like that's what I tell Mm -hmm. folks, public health touches every aspect of your life, whether or not you can see it, from public restrooms to restaurants, crossing the street, actual yeah. medicine, you know, the air that you breathe, the food that you mm-hmm. you know, it's truly... Yeah. everywhere. And so I just wasn't really ready to leave that yet. I wanted to be able to not only treat patients as an individual, but be yeah. able to return to that more community care model. You know, think of things outside of the disease state that yes. are impacting the patient. Any of our public health folks watching know it's kind of like the socioeconomic you know, yeah. determinants of yes. health and the social determinants of health that mm-hmm. I really wanted to be able to bring into a clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Now people ask me, has it really affected your job opportunities or your salary? And honestly, I don't think so as Mm a PA, but I think having that background in my mind has served my patients well and and me well and maybe one day i will work in more of a community health yeah. type yeah. area because i do love it it's in it's yeah. my heart
0: i super agree with all of that i mean i work in an interventional cardiology outpatient clinic right and it's so easy to okay here's your prescription and here's a healthy meal diet that we should follow let's say like, we do we know that-
2: can get to a grocery store, you know, we don't know if those people have the funds to purchase these meals and just regular individualistic medicine Mm -hmm. is so Mm -hmm. like closed off to the reality of treatment patients.
0: Yeah, super agree. That's why it's like, can I even afford this? Do they even have, like you said, access to a grocery store nearby? And I think that's what the power of public health does, right? It just tries to give this bigger picture of not just the patients, but the community as a whole. And like I said, even prior to the pandemic, public health has, I feel like, one of those fields within sciences that wasn't really talked about. I mean, obviously, we have those yearly flu vaccines, we have the vaccine series for children, and this and that. But I think it was when the pandemic came, it's like, oh my gosh, public health, this is the the big deal. Yeah. As someone who has been within the field of public health, even from undergrad, prior to the pandemic, what do you think are the biggest changes you've seen in the realm of public health before the pandemic? And then I want to say after the pandemic, because we're still in it, but like, since the commencement of COVID? Well,
2: I think some of the changes are a lot more obvious. Before, I would say really only like germaphobes would (laughs) have gloves and hand sanitizer all the time. And, you know, most people know wash your hands after the restroom, but those most like, visible, tangible things is attention to hygiene Mm -hmm. that I think has exploded. And what's interesting about, you know, and you know, we've kind of talked about this, is that mask wearing in a lot of parts of the world is just like a mainstream thing that you do when you're in crowds, that you do when you've got a cold. So that's something different, I think, to Mm -hmm. the U.S., Um, you know, to Asia and and other countries. You know, it's kind of standard, which as a provider, you know, we've seen less Mm -hmm. flu cases than ever before Mm -hmm. so there is something Mm -hmm. to this whole masking thing and people just being aware of the basis of epidemiology and Mm. the way that disease or viral Mm -hmm. illness you know whatever it is actually Mm -hmm. does spread through Mm -hmm. our communities it brought a whole new awareness to the field again of of epidemiology and disease spread than ever before
0: Yeah. yeah and i think that's why it's like i said earlier it's so important to hear these words from those have actual education and training in it, right? I mean, I think one of the biggest things that we see, especially in social media, is the fear-mongering, right, of those who are not within science and within science fields and just the amount of misinformation that's just so flagrant across the virtual world, right? I mean, I feel like especially when the vaccines came out for COVID-19, the amount of claims <laughs> we've seen wildfire on whatsapp and facebook and instagram right and that's and why it became it, came
2: like a political divide <laughs> like that's yeah. something i think is yeah. unique to this situation yeah. at least As far as I know, historically, there Mm -hmm. were some communities who didn't want to vaccinate, but it wasn't such a like red and blue kind of left versus Mm -hmm. right issue to get a vaccine. That is something unique to this. um, Just everything about this situation politically, you know, Mm -hmm. from a medical perspective, it Mm -hmm. was just such... I mean, such a game changer. And I think we're still all trying to cope with the consequences of what we've been through collectively as a society.
0: Definitely, I mean, you know, public health is everyone's responsibility. It's not a bipartisan issue. Well, it shouldn't be a bipartisan issue, right? I think just like basic human conduct and respect to just care for each other, right? And try to protect each other as much as we can. And when it comes to protection, other than just masking and vaccinating within the realm of public health, I think there's a lot of emotional protection that needs to be done as well in very sensitive topics. And And it's one that you mentioned earlier, which is the focus of your practice, right? Is for the LGBTQ plus community think it's one of the communities that has one of the most, 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 most misunderstandings from those outside the community, right? And a lot of vitriol and judgment and uh, hate. And, and obviously, you chose to practice in a setting where this is the focus. And I wanted to ask, what have you experienced thus far in your life that Made you realize that it's so important that we target the LGBTQ plus community.
2: Sure. Well, I think anyone who is part of that community mm-hmm. has had at least one or two like awkward experiences <laughs> when seeking out health care, mm-hmm. and sometimes not just awkward, but like downright hateful and mm-hmm. discriminatory. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: and so that's you know something that I feel. Keeps, well, we know for a fact that it keeps a demographic of people away from the doctor, away from seeking health care mm-hmm. that they need, mm-hmm. because they are afraid of discrimination. They are afraid that the providers are not queer friendly. Mm-hmm. And another thing to really think about is that even if the person or the provider or the clinic that you're seeing doesn't discriminate based on, you know, sexual orientation or gender mm-hmm. identity or whatever, are they well-trained? Do they know about the things mm-hmm. that are specific to our community? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different examples of that. Obviously, mm-hmm. depending on your sexual practices, you're going to need different STI screening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um are the people well-versed in hormones for trans mm-hmm. patients, <laughs> PrEP services, mm-hmm. prep services, HIV mm-hmm. counseling, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And even if we're not talking about You know, there's so many layers to it, like being Mm -hmm. an inclusive provider, being focused or catering to the Mm -hmm. queer community starts like before they even get in the door, you know, on intake forms, you want to have options for gender, you know, inclusive forms, basically for Mm -hmm. all things, have your preferred name if it's different from Mm -hmm. your legal name, and just little tiny changes like that, asking someone what their pronouns are before they come into the door. That way you don't have Mm -hmm. that awkward experience. They're just little tiny changes changes that practices can make to set yourself up for success right out of the gate.
0: Yeah, super, super agree. I mean, like you said, aside from With STI screenings and prep and all those stuff, I think there's a whole psychosocial component to it, right? And you're right, it starts from the moment they enter the door and then they, they fill up those intake forms. And for your practice specifically, how do you accomplish that? I guess like take us to when a new patient would come in to your clinic and how does that experience look like or what you would hope to look like for them?
2: Well, we do, you know, we have a certain set of ways that we do things. So let's say that you have found our practice online. First and foremost, our website lets you know straight out the gate. Like, you know, we mentioned Pride and how all of the providers who work there, yeah. literally all of them are queer. Mm-hmm. Almost every single person who works there from the nurse to the reception are, you know, openly LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you'll see on our website, on our social media, straight out the gate. Mm -hmm. So you go to our website and you want to register to be a patient. We do take virtual patients from Mm -hmm. all over the country, as well as patients who are local to us in LA. There is some registration forms that you fill out. And for the most part, they're just like anything that you've ever filled out. What's your address? What's this, that, and the other? But some of the small changes that we made, obviously we need your legal name for insurance Mm -hmm. purposes, Mm -hmm. but we have a preferred name section. Mm -hmm. We have a pronoun section. Mm -hmm. And it was important to make these areas fill in the blank we have a gender section that's fill in the blank so we're not even going to like make you pick between male female non-binary know, we're not going to put these little boxes Mm -hmm. you tell us Mm -hmm. how you identify which is you know nice Mm -hmm. and we have a little section you know anything special you want us to know about you some people are like oh i'm really afraid of needles or Mm -hmm. other people will say i really prefer a female provider or just Mm -hmm. whatever it is Mm -hmm. just that we know these things about you another thing that i think we do differently that i really like is when we get patients in for vitals we ask them is it okay if we weigh you because Mm -hmm. everyone knows that weight is very triggering for some patients Mm -hmm. i think no one likes to be pushed on a scale so you know we just ask is it okay if we weigh you and you'd be surprised at the difference that that makes If the patient wants to be weighed, but they don't want to know, we'll weigh them backwards. So you don't even have to see the weight. Only I'll see it. You get the choice of whether or not you want to undress and put on this gown. You know, we're not like, oh, here's a paper gown, like Mm -hmm. get naked. We, You know, obviously the gowns are better because we can do an exam. But if the first time we meet someone, they don't want to put on a paper gown, we're not going to push the issue. (laughs) And so that's just like things you can do to make the environment comfortable before mm-hmm. you even get into the actual clinical aspect of
0: things. Mm-hmm. See, that sounds so beautiful. And that sounds so amazing. And I mean, just hearing about it, it's like, wow, this is truly like an inclusive you know, practice where the hope really is to get the most quality care as possible, right? And I think quality care really stems from the trust that the patients give to their providers, right? When there's that fourth wall, I feel like no matter what you do, it's like there's that sense of they are not going to be comfortable telling you everything that they feel or and, what they're thinking.
2: We all know like the history is the most important thing. Yeah. Like, you can almost diagnose mm-hmm. folks off the mm-hmm. history and if they feel that they can't tell you exactly what happened mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we try to really make an environment where patients can tell us anything yeah. and that's what makes the job so fun is that they yeah. tell us everything
0: yeah so I'm i like wanted to
2: right because we got to talk yeah. about these things even yeah. if they're a little taboo
0: yeah i wanted to ask about that do you think that the practice of being open that oh we're all part of the community and it's explicitly said do you think that it makes a difference in the amount of information well, which you answered already. You think that it makes a difference the amount of information that they share?
2: Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and we all kind of have those moments. I always tell people about like my own personal experience Mm -hmm. of like going to the doctor early college and they're, you know, they're like, Oh, are you sexually active? Mm -hmm. At this time I was like currently with my now wife and Mm -hmm. they were like, Oh, are you taking birth control? I'm like, no. And we go back and forth and back and forth about like, why I'm not on birth control. And I (laughs) I couldn't say anything. I truly didn't say anything. So I took the script and I was like, okay, I'm going to go get on it. Like, thanks. (laughs) 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 like i i just couldn't say what it was yeah yeah even in my own experience i feel like it makes a huge 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 difference
0: oh yeah i mean that's a very very real experience and i mean aside from that too right i think also topics of like shame is a big part of it right when there's that no sense of like, oh, can I trust these information yeah, with like, my provider?
2: Provider gonna think I'm like a slut or yeah, 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 yeah. Like, can I really yeah. tell them what we did? And, and yeah, yeah, it that, makes a huge yeah. difference. And in getting the diagnosis right, like mm-hmm. if we don't know truly mm-hmm. what you've been doing, then we might miss something that's important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think the last thing you want is your patient who is just like so closed off because of the environment that the practice exudes, right? And so, I mean, just hearing you explain all of that about where you work, it's just like, oh, wow, it's truly such an open, open place. And I can't, I can only imagine the peace that and the trust that your patients feel for that. So it's truly, truly amazing. And, you know, all of these small things are like the blank boxes where they don't need to choose from. These small things are actually very astronomically big, right? These are huge, huge factors in this quality of care and this trust. Aside from the small things, they're are big things that you have been part of especially in your practice and what we were tying back earlier to this ever-changing world of medicine and medical technology is i know you gave the first dose of injection of aptitude right like was it a a few months ago yeah it it was a couple months ago and it
2: just worked out that way like Mm -hmm. our we had a patient who was really educated on APRITUDE, mm-hmm. knew it was a great choice for him. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's listening and you're not sure what APRITUDE is, it is injectable PrEP. So PrEP is medication that you can take to prevent the transmission of HIV. And it's always been daily pills up until the last month or so, and the first injection came out. Super exciting. And I did have the honor of giving the first shot, which was exciting. And ever since then, we've had lots of other other patients jump mm. onto Aptitude. it's a really good option but yeah we are you know we're we're trying to do the big things as well trying to stay up to date to actually offer patients the latest in care uh, if you know anything yeah. about HIV and HIV medicine you know what an amazing ride it's been from the days of you know 30 pills around the clock yeah, and, yeah. you know side effects from those pills and yeah. you know truly in some cases a death sentence to now we have prep and treatment options that are as easy as one shot every two months. Yeah, you're right. We do try to stay on top of these are big, big things for the HIV community.
0: All throughout high school and bouts of college, I suffered from severe acne. I cried almost every day looking at the mirror. I wore hoodies during the summer to hide my cheeks. When my mom asked me what I wanted for my birthday, all I wished for was a visit to the dermatologist. I tried so many products and saw so many estheticians, physicians, and other advanced providers. But I know that my mere access to these products and providers is a privilege. Many who suffer from acne and other skin conditions live in many underserved populations where access to dermatology specialists can be difficult due to limited resources. To help bridge this divide, Ben Epidia, a dermatology nurse practitioner, recently launched Your Skin Care Experts Derm course, which can allow other specialties to provide comprehensive care to patients through dermatology in places where access may be limited. The course can also be used to help better train extended providers within the field of dermatology to feel confident and empowered in their knowledge. From fortifying skin anatomy to identifying skin types and concerns, breaking down acne, building skincare routines, and going over active ingredients, The course seeks to further knowledge on skincare, anti-aging, acne, and overall holistic skin health. Friends of Franz is partnering with Your Skincare Expert so that you can get 10% of the course with the code FRANZ, that's F-R-A-N-Z, or visit yourskincareexpertcom slash Franz. My skin and my life were changed by the right products and the right people. Through this course, I hope that this would also be made possible for others. Anyone who knows me knows that I love boba. After a heavy dinner, no problem. I have a second stomach for boba, and sometimes even a third. But each cup of bubble tea is definitely a guilty pleasure, given that the average cafe-made milk tea has over 100 calories per serving, over 20 grams of high-glycemic sugar, and is packed with artificial flavors. I am so glad that the guilty days are over with Twirl, the world's first canned, plant-based milk tea. With only 45 to 50 calories per serving, and containing six to seven grams of sugar, and low glycemic sweeteners at that, goodbye to sugar crash. Twirl is made with pea milk, the most sustainable plant-based milk on the market, regenerating the soil where it comes from. This is thanks to the fact that fair trade and organic are the names of the game, as the teas are sourced from biodiverse family farms in China, Japan, and Taiwan that practice sustainable farming techniques. No artificial flavors are ever used. Choose from 3 antioxidant flavors of the chocolatey Taiwan Style Black Milk Tea, Floral Jasmine, and Nutty Hojicha. Enjoy all of these flavors, each being nitro-infused that you can feel and hear their fresh, silky, and creamy texture with each pop of the can. Let's enjoy tasty, creamy, shelf-stable, and healthy milk tea together for 10% off using the code FRANZ10. That's franz N Z one zero. Now available on twirlmilktea.com or Amazon. Twirl around and it's goodness just to think that before it's like propping pills every single day and you know even the cost of those pills right and then now yeah. we have we have things like for treatment right like cabinuva and yeah. which i know you also give in your practice you know these things are so amazing it just makes you think of wow medicine is so interesting like there's the amount of advancements that we have made right technologically scientifically but i think there's still a lot of work to be done with the whole psychosocial aspect right and i think
2: the disparity
0: yeah Yeah, and I think the realm of, and the topic of HIV is one that there's still a lot of misinformation uh, going on around that. And as someone who focuses on the LGBTQ plus community, who historically has always been stigmatized with HIV, what do you think? I think a spinoff first, what do you think is the most frustrating misinformation you've heard thus far about either HIV or about the LGBTQ plus community within the clinical sense?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, it really depends on who you talk to and where you go. The attitude around HIV is so, so different. So I think I'm in a little bit of a bubble, you know, here in West Hollywood, in Los Angeles, you know, HIV is almost a very normalized topic. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. see billboards for it. Most mm-hmm. people know someone living with HIV and it's mm-hmm. something that is, you know, kind of socially more acceptable mm-hmm. versus, for example, where I'm from in the deep south. Mm-hmm. It's still very taboo. It's a frightening yeah. subject. Um mm-hmm misconceptions that people have about hiv is that it is a death sentence or that you know you'll never be able to have a sex life again mm-hmm. or you know you're going to live a shorter life less quality of life mm-hmm. or you're going to have to be taking all these pills mm-hmm. and that's just not the case modern treatment of hiv is either in most cases one pill once mm-hmm. a day mm-hmm. blood work sometimes as few as every 6 months mm-hmm. i mean it's so treatable. You can have a fantastic quality of life. Mm -hmm. I have patients with HIV pushing 90 and doing great. Those are the things that I wish people knew is that it's not the way that it was. Mm -hmm. It's not a problem that's limited only to the queer community either. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think for the first time this year, there were more new HIV cases in heterosexual folks Mm -hmm. actually and that's a bit of a blind spot as well. You know, people yeah. almost don't expect hetero people to contract yeah. HIV when in fact they do just like, you know, in Yeah. 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 So There's a lot, a lot, a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of misconceptions depending on where you live, what kind of access to care you have, what your peer group looks like. And so that's something that's just going to be an ongoing battle is the stigma against HIV.
0: Yeah. And look how far we've come, right? And Yes. The- And I think there's many, many more things to do. And I think one of my last questions for you is, as someone who is part of the community, deeply cares for the community, and you have shown it by working within the community as a physician associate, what do you think is your biggest hope for the LGBTQ plus community within the sphere of medicine in the years to come?
2: I hope that in the years to come, that it's not so much of a specialized area of practice like LGBTQ medicine, because the the reality is that no matter what you practice, if you're a cardiologist, a surgeon, a home health nurse, it truly doesn't matter. Like You Mm -hmm. will treat queer and trans patients at some point, like you will. And I think it's imperative that... It becomes more mainstream for Mm -hmm. not just your queer primary care office to respect your pronouns and respect your name and know how to address you and know what kind of special things to think about. Just is mainstream and not, you know, I feel that more providers should know about PrEP, more providers should mm. know about STI screening, more providers should know about, you know, the, again, socioeconomic things that go into mm-hmm. patients' lives. So I hope that that's our future, is that you can be sure as a queer person that any office you walk into is not going to, you know, traumatize you.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. super agree. I know there's this one physician, I forgot who, who also specializes in LGBTQ plus care. And he said something along the lines of, we know we've made it when we don't need a specialty for LGBTQ plus care anymore.
2: Thank you. Yes. Where,
0: where it's just care. It's, it's just, just, yeah, health, it's just, it's just healthcare. It's
2: the same care. Like, you know, yeah. everyone, for, I guess, for the most part, just knows what to ask, is not going to judge you for the answers. Yeah. You yeah. know, you don't have to feel like you have to come out to your doctor yeah. or your provider. It's just like a part of you and yeah. not the focus of the visit. I
0: agree. And I love our talk about public health and your work in the LGBTQ community. And I can't imagine how stressful it could be, though, right? I mean, I can't imagine how taxing it could be also emotionally when patients share to you their for sure past experiences with other providers who are not as open and as not as accepting as your practice is right and uh, many times we can become a sponge where we take all that in and it can we deal with it emotionally how do you decompress out of work. How do you decompress out of those emotions that are laid on you? Because as a physician associate, you're not just the one who prescribes or treats or diagnoses. You're one who is actually there for them. And kind of like a mini therapist too, right? Like talk to them through it and talk to them oh, about yeah. it. How yeah, do you decompress out am, of that?
2: Like primary care that we're also therapists yeah. too yeah. because we get a lot of mental health you know, that is a lot of what we do Mm -hmm. is outside of Mm -hmm. the sinus infection and full physical is anxiety and depression. And in, you know, it's very difficult to find psychiatric care and find a therapist, Mm -hmm. even in LA. So imagine, you know, other parts of the world. So Mm. we do act a lot of times as kind of mini therapists for our patients as well. Um, I think I'm still learning like how to practice Mm -hmm. self-care and how to decompress. I I do take a lot of work home, literally with charting and also Mm -hmm. mentally. But things that I do to take care of myself, I mean, I have two dogs. One is right here in my lap. (gasps) And so I hang out with these guys, (laughs) you know, walk them around (laughs) a block. Mm -hmm. I try to get out with my, well, wife. That sounds so crazy to say. Um, I'm try to get outside and you know go on some hikes. I'm a big fan of retail therapy. There
1: we go. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, it.
2: But I mean, yeah, I'm still. I used to be big into yoga. I kind of got mm. out of that with the mm-hmm. with the pandemic. But yeah. um, I'm, I need to find like some sort of practice like that. I think most healthcare people over the past two years have kind of neglected themselves.
0: I know we have, and it's not right. And we have to, especially in trying times like these, we have, we really have to take care of ourselves. And, you know, thank you so much for all of the work that you do, this amazing work that you do. And it's just so reassuring and calming to hear that there are people and there are practices and there are providers out there who are really making a difference in people's lives, not just clinically, not just psychosocially, but just like on a very personal level. And you're amazing, Asia. I love your work and I love your content. And I'm so honored that you joined me in this space today. I
2: same way about you. I was so happy when you asked me to do this. And I'm always down to chat about these things i mean this is like my life i could talk about yeah, it forever yeah. so thanks for having
0: me I really of appreciate course it. asia thank you so much i hope you have a great rest of the day there i miss la i have family in la so i visit like every five months So, well
2: when you're here let's get together
0: yes i'm planning to visit either next month or the month after so i'll let you know for sure. i would
2: love that yeah. thank All you right. bye everybody thank, thank you, you.
0: We have now reached the end of the story. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Friends of France. I hope you had an enjoyable adventure learning about our expert guest, their work, and why they do the things that they do. Please check out the rest of the series available on all podcast platforms. Please also consider following the podcast on the platform that you prefer, turn on the alerts for new episodes so you don't miss new stories, and give us a rating to support the show. You can find more updates on the podcast's official Instagram at Friends of France Pod or my personal Instagram at Chris Franz. That's without the I because there is no I in team. <laughs> I'm kidding, someone already took the username. Have a great day or night, everybody!